0: Um, how's
1: it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Chris Gabrielli to the Philicrosophy Podcast. Chris is the head coach at Providence College and I'm uh, really excited to have you on, Chris. How you doing, man?
2: I'm doing all right. Thank you so much, you know, for having me. Certainly trying to settle into our new normal here, but you know, starting to figure out a routine like everybody yeah. else.
1: Cool. Well, um, as usual, I like to try to um, t- steer our attention away from the realities of this uh, pandemic and actually sure. just dive into lacrosse topics. So let's do it. Um I would love to hear about your lacrosse journey um, as a player, as a coach, um, kind of where it started and, and, and about your mentors along the way.
2: Yeah, you know, I've had a ton of mentors along the way, and this is going to be fun for me to, you know, really reflect upon. I think uh, in Division One lacrosse, you're always looking about, you know, what's next, what's forward, you know, trying to get that next practice, that next win, that next recruit, all that stuff. So it's nice to reflect.
0: I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate? Well, that was me in gold that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year, and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements, or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com.
2: But I grew up in Farmingdale, New York, you know, um, a real true hotbed for um, lacrosse and uh, football, a really proud town, you know, a town that, you know, really supports athletics, cares about sports. Um, A lot of people grow up in Farmingdale and will go back and and live in Farmingdale and raise their families there. Um, So there's a ton of pride. You know, um, I grew up watching you know guys in the in the early 90s that went on to play in every school you can possibly imagine you know uh, off the top of my head you know Jim Stroob you know at Brown and Dennis Kelly you know at UMass and um, um, Brian Baxo and Kirk Blaygrove uh, Loyola Jay Penn you know at, at Johns Hopkins Todd Carney was one of my favorite defensemen of all time who went to Johns Hopkins as well and Guys like the, the Tommaso brothers and uh, the Krumenakkers, you know, way before when I was probably really watching the games, you know, just so much tradition, you know, in the sport of lacrosse. And all those guys played football as well. So when you grow up in that town, you know, you just want to be those guys. You want to be those guys. And um, the coaches like um, Bob Hartraft and Buddy Krumenakker, who did was the head football coach and uh, assistant lacrosse coach, you know you grow up looking at those guys like they were gods you know they they were like they were intimidating uh they were you know, they were so respected um you know what they said was was the gospel you know um and you know all of a sudden then you're playing for those guys and uh, you know certainly had a huge impact on me and why I'm coaching you know you look at those guys and like you know you you, know, you, you like what they're about um uh, and a lot of things that I teach, uh, you know, our core values or even the way we play lacrosse or just the toughness aspect, you know, comes from, you know, Farmingdale and what what I learned there.
1: Is is part of the reason why you ended up at UMass because of uh, Jim Stroop when he was an assistant there?
2: Definitely. You know, definitely. Um, that night, you know, I would watch I watched, uh, you know, Dennis Kelly was, uh, you know, Uh, one of those guys I mentioned who I just looked up to so much, you know, growing up watching him play football and, and lacrosse. And, you know, he was just nasty, tough, athletic, you know, competitor, just mean guy (laughs) on the field and just a playmaker. Um, So intense. Um, And, you know, I remember going to games at Hofstra when it was UMass Hofstra and being like so proud watching, you know, uh, him play at that level, and you know Jim Strube, who I can vividly remember. I must have been pretty darn young watching him play at Farmingdale High School with the long hair, yeah. coming coming out of his helmet. Um, yeah, he was an assistant coach, you know, at UMass for Greg Canella um, during the recruiting process, and um, you know, so we had that that connection. He recruited me and my twin brother Keith, um, and. You know, he had a plan for both of us and, you know, visited the house and sat down with me and, and my parents and, you know, and, and eventually Keith and I both ended up there. And I think he was a big, a big reason for that.
1: Struby was a freshman at Brown. When I was a senior, he was in my brother's class and uh, just an awesome guy who was in the coaching profession for probably like 10 years before he moved on to be becoming an attorney.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but um uh, great segue into UMass. Um, I did a podcast with Greg Canella, who I played against back in the day, and of course i have watched and known for tons of years. Tell me what it was like playing at UMass um, and and uh, playing for Coach Canella. Uh,
2: it was a dream come true. It was you know seamless from Farmingdale. You know Coach Canella is a a Limbrook guy, uh, which is probably as similar a town there is on Long Island to Farmingdale in terms of, you know, what we're all about. Um, So, you know, we were in sync, uh, probably right from the start, (laughs) you know, in many ways. I uh, loved his intensity, his attention to detail, his professionalism, um, you know, his accountability that he held the guys to. Uh, I learned how to work. I thought we worked hard at Farmingdale (laughs) you know then we got there and you know uh his commitment to conditioning you know running and um and strength training um man I I look back I was sitting I did a zoom meeting with my friends from college the other night and we were looking back at pictures and we were in the best shape of our life you know that's (laughs) sure um but you know uh he carried that pride that 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 pride that I had in playing for Farmingdale, you know, carried over and was like the same environment, you know, at UMass, you know, such a proud tradition, you know, so proud to be part of the program. And, you know, he played there and played for Dick Garber and,
0: you
2: know, um, he made UMass lacrosse, you know, his life. And that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted it to be much like my high school experience, where it's like, there's nothing better than this um and he created that environment and i was all about it
1: what are some of the things that you have taken in your modern day mentality and and philosophies from coach canella
2: yeah again i think you know coach canella buddy krumnoch buddy hutraft those those are you know those are guys that don't shy away from being fierce competitors um you know so i think he was very similar you know in that way um you know the intensity that we bring on the, on the practice field and game field, you know, it kind of flip a switch, you know, from a, a pretty professional, um, you know, maybe even uh introvert, you know, off the field to, uh, you know, Hey, this is my, this is my domain. This is my comfort zone. Um, you know, that's what I miss the most right now during this thing, you know, yeah. but, um, you know, I could certainly, again, relate to him in that regard and, you know, felt like, you know, this was the best part of my day. I think he created that for us. Um, but yeah, all the things that I learned, you know, I carry over to my team. Whenever I'm reflecting on, you know, I, I say to myself, you know, what would Greg Canella do? You know, <laughs> and, you know, uh, And often, I in crisis, I I will definitely call him, you know, because he's seen it all. He's seen it all. And you know, being a head coach for just seven or eight years now, you know, you have more and more respect for man the amount of things he must have dealt with i'm talking about you know off the field you right. know and and um you know how strong of a person you need to be um self-confident you know in yourself um you know unwavering um and he is all those things so you know he's about as strong a person as i know <laughs> so you know i try to i try to be that uh, when i can
1: so then, you went on to be an assistant for a couple of years at UMass. Uh, who else was on the staff with you, and what was that like?
2: Yeah, so um, Terry Mangan and Andy Shea were assistant coaches. Uh, Terry Mangan is another huge mentor of mine. Jim Strube was uh, Coach Canella's assistant for my freshman sophomore year, and then Andy Shea came in, you know, uh, my junior year, uh, and then my senior year, Terry Mangan came along on staff. With Coach Shea and Coach Canella, um, and then after a year of being out of college, Terry Mangan um, uh, earned the head coaching position at Lafayette College, which opened up a spot on Coach Canella's staff. And um, both Coach Canella and Coach Shea, you know, reached out to me and you know said, "Hey, th- you know, you you this is something that you should try. You know, we think you're you're kind of made for this," um, and certainly you know, having the pride that I did in the program, I think, is something that coach wanted, you know, in his staff. He continues that today with guys that are, you know, played for him, that are coaching for him. Um, so I zero hesitation. I was like, I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so I was able to work with um Coach Canella and Coach Shea for a year. Um and then um, Andy Shea after that first year we had an awesome season we beat Syracuse twice we went to the quarterfinals wow. that was a lot of that was a lot of fun great year in 2003 and then um, Andy Shea got the head position at Yale that summer and then Jason Miller joined the staff and oh, Jason yeah. a, another guy probably as influential as any of anybody in terms of how I coach defense um, you know so I got to work with him for two years along with Coach Canella. So yeah, I was at UMass for three years you know and then um, you know uh, I had an opportunity to go to to Butler University and work with um, Stan Ross. I thought that was a great chance for me to you know step out of my comfort zone a little bit, you know take on more on my plate in terms of a defensive coordinator and recruiting coordinator. Mm-hmm. um and I had so much respect for Stan Ross and you know, he, you know he's a guy that had worked with Bill Tierney and you know Tony Seaman and Dave Cottle and yeah I think he worked with you know played for Petra was his coach at at one point you know so I just thought that was a great chance to kind of learn some more and so that was quite quite an experience but I was only there for one year uh because then, um, during that year that was 2006 when the whole duke scandal you know took place and then you know that summer john donowski took over at at um at duke and right back to my farmingdale roots because coach donowski you know uh was raising his family in farmingdale uh my dad was his dentist (laughs) (laughs) you know and uh I i think he came into the office one day was getting his teeth worked on and said to my dad you know, would Chris have any interest? You know, in in, in coming to Duke? Because, ironically, my dad uh, went to Duke. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't play sports there, but he was uh he was a student at Duke. Um, so, you know, I grew up you know, in a rabid uh, Duke basketball fan. Uh, my friends I grew up with joke around that it's just crazy that I ended up at Duke. You know, for six years, wild.
1: That's awesome. Great story. So what was it like? Um, I mean, the, in the wake of the whole Duke scandal and getting an opportunity to go work at, you know, a place like Duke that also, I guess, happened to be one of your favorite schools. Um, you know, what was all that like?
2: It was unbelievable. I, um, I must, I couldn't describe it. You know, I think Coach Danowski should write a book one day. Um, and I think he plans to, you know, there's, I don't think there was anybody better, you know, for that position than he, you know, it was such a chaotic time, yeah. um, you know, and, and certainly, you know, having his son Matt there and, you know, was was a I think a big reason for him wanting to, you know, kind of right the ship, you know, there. But, you know, Coach Donowski is probably more of a uh, – you know, an educator and psychologist than maybe any other division one coach out there. I mean, he's just one of the smartest people I've ever met, you know, well read and, you know, you know, gets the guys to really be vulnerable and talk to each other. And uh, that's what they needed, you know, at that time, there was so many emotions uh, amongst that team, you know, and, you know, I was really the only true outsider, you know, Kevin Cassis stayed on staff and, you know, he was there for the whole thing. And obviously the whole team um, was there for the whole scandal. And Coach Donowski was the father, you know, of a player going through the yeah. whole thing. Uh, even the handful of recruits that stuck with their commitment, you know, were tied to it. So, you know, I respected that very much so and knew I had to earn a lot of people's, you know, trust, um, but these guys were going through so many emotions, um, you know, they felt sadness, they were angry, they felt guilty for some things, you know, they, like, they just wanted, they wanted to be perfect. <laughs> they wanted to show the world that they were good guys and just wanted to play. They just wanted to play, um, you know, and I was exposed to all of that and still a very young guy, uh, you know, and, uh, certainly deferred to coach Danowski on all those things. And I just tried to be a sponge. Um, you know, I think for me, I just tried to keep it about lacrosse and the boys appreciated that. Just want to try to help them win. Um, but um, it was, it was wild, wild, all the, all the different stages of that thing. But, you know, I forged an awesome relationship with uh, coach Danowski and Kevin Cassis during that process.
1: Tell us a story about Coach Stanowski, about something, uh, the way he was able to use that sort of psychology uh, to help uh, a team um, in the heat of battle. Or was Uh, it not like that anyways? Was it more just kind of the day-to-day psychology that was his major strength?
2: Yeah, you know, I just think, you know, he kept it always about the team, Um, you know didn't really embrace the superstar thing, which is hard in a place like that. When you have probably five or six All-Americans, you know, he he continued to coach the guys, probably very similar to how he coached at CW Post or Hofstra, you know, tried to make the whole greater than the parts. Um, um, you know, I think he tried to help the guys not put so much pressure on themselves um, by coming back to the joy of playing. Um, playing for one another, uh, not making it bigger than it is, you know, which was hard because like I said, they, they wanted to be so successful, you know, to show that they, they had all the right stuff, which they did. Uh, those are some of the most amazing kids I've, you know, ever been around, you know um, but I think he, uh, you know, he allowed, like I said before, you know, he created an environment for those guys to really, you know, be vulnerable, talk about, you know, what made them angry, what made them, you know, frustrated, what made them sad and, you know, uh, you know, all that stuff. Um, and like I said, I don't think there was anybody better, you know, at the time for that type of, that type of um, job that he had to do there.
1: Yeah, that was a tough one. And he did do an amazing job. And I, you, know, you look back at the, uh, you know, the documentary on the whole thing on how these kids just got so railroaded. It's just hard to imagine mm-hmm. being them you know, at that time, um, completely being dragged through the mud. Uh, and it was, all, it was all false. Crazy. Um, who, was that? who else was on the staff with you then?
2: So it was um, my, the first year there, um, Kevin Cassis, who was the interim coach for the summer there, I think prior, you know, he stayed on um, and then myself. Yep. And then after that first year, Kevin Cassis uh, earned the head coaching position at Lehigh. Yeah, And then Ron Caputo came along. And talk about a guy that, you know, I learned so much from. I mean, uh, he is an absolute genius um, in lacrosse. And, you know, he's a guy, a similar personality to me. You know, he's from Hicksville, which is like a rival of Farmingdale. So again, people made up of the same sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, an absolute genius uh, challenged me in many ways to think about, you know, how I do things. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, what I teach now um, is is certainly a combination of all the guys you work with along the way, you know, but um, he was, uh, you know, so analytical, you know, about things and the terminology that he comes up with and the way he describes things in a simple but genius way at the same time. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, you know, he really is a savant, you know, of the sport. You know, and I don't think gets enough credit, (laughs) you know. um, I agree. He is one of those
1: guys that not that many people know his name, um, but he is a behind-the-scenes incredible coach who can coach both sides of the ball. Anything. And skill, and you name it. I mean, he's so smart. I agree. So interesting to talk to. Got to get him on a podcast one of these days.
2: Yeah, I think he's a guy you've got to uh, because he is – as smart as they come in the game of lacrosse and anybody that's ever played for him anywhere. will tell you that, um, you know, so, you know, he's had an incredible impact on, on me. So, you know, as I'm going through this, all of these people that have had a, you know, helped shape who I am as a coach and a person, um, you know, I could not be more grateful, um, just simply for our time together. You know, um, I'm a guy that, you know, uh, Likes to spend time with uh, the, uh, the coaches as French as friends, away from away from it all as well. But obviously, we spent so much time, you know, together, uh, and there was never a moment with any of those guys I mentioned that we didn't enjoy every second together.
1: I know the camaraderie of a coaching staff is special. No, no other word for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 2012, you apply for and get the job at Providence. Um, as I say to everybody. Uh, Thinking about my own first step to a head coaching job, you can read all the books you want, but it's kind of like becoming a parent—you really have no idea what you're in for. But it's so ex- exhilarating, difficult, challenging, and fun all at the same time.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I, I thought the same thing in, in terms of like stepping into any any leadership role where you're 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 raising your level of uh, responsibility. Like you don't really know how to be a defensive coordinator until you. Just do it, you know. You you have to make mistakes along the way, and you have to you know learn how to express yourself and learn. Just you get better at it uh, every day. I did the same is true, and I, you know, making that move to become a head coach. Um, you know, you're around guys like you know Greg Canella and Stan Ross and you know John Danowski, and you watch the way they they command a room and you know seem to have all the answers and when you're sitting there you know as an assistant coach just being a sponge you know uh you're like you know I want to be like that one day I want to be that guy you know and and then you get there and you're like wow this is a lot harder than I thought you know (laughs) you know they made it look easy you know but um I probably had to remind myself that I was watching John Donowski, you know, coach, uh, you know, in his 20th, 25th year, whatever it was in coaching, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, I think, you you know, you're not a good coach unless you realize you don't know everything. Um, and you're, you're, you, um, as soon as you think you know it all, you're, you're probably dead in the water, you know? So it's like, sure. even today, you know, You know, I even get a little anxiety and like, man, I don't, I need to learn more. I don't know enough, you know, I got to help these guys, you know, and I think if you continue to have that mentality, um, you're going to continue to get better. You know, um, you know, I, I try to teach our guys, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be, you know, willing to look yourself in the mirror, you know, what I need to get better at, um, you know, and that's something I try to do every day.
1: I don't think very many people realize how complex being a Division I head coach really is. How many things you have to be good at, whether it's the leadership, the compliance, the fundraising, the uh, expertise in everything, uh, the recruiting, which is sales. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's like 10 things you actually have to be really, really good at. And, of course, you also have to have an amazing staff.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, You know, like, I think you made the perfect analogy. It's kind of like parenting, you know, some parents make it look easy. And (laughs) until until you're actually doing it, you see how hard this thing really is, you know. Um, Yeah, you know, you have to really take it one step at a time. You have to learn from your mistakes. You have to have great conviction, you know, in who you are um, and what you stand for to try to simplify things, you know, when you can. Uh, by, you know, having certain standards. Um, But then I think you have to be, you know, very open, you know, to growing and changing and and doing different things. You know, before they made the recruiting rule change, you know, we were recruiting like four classes at a time. You had a roster of 45 people. You know, we had like 80, 90 people under our watch at at one time. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's nuts. It's a lot. It's a lot. You know, you look at like basketball you know, programs and, you know, they have like 13 players and 13 coaches, it seems, (laughs) you know, on the sideline after their director of operations and their secretaries and their graduate assistants and volunteers and, you know, full-time people, Um, you know, and yeah, I'll be the first to say, and, you know, I know I had a a big role when I was an assistant coach for the people I worked with. And, you know, I'm the first to give credit to all of the assistant coaches that, have helped me figure it out. Um, I think I create an environment where, you know, they have the voice, you know, to, you know, say what they want and, you know, um, convince me of doing things. And, you know, it's probably not that hard, you know, I really trust the guys I work with and respect them. And, uh, you know, the first thing I did when I was at, um, when I, uh, earned the uh, head coaching position at Providence College is hired John Galloway, you know, and man, I look back and, you know, he spent four years with me um, along with Brett Holm uh, who came from Tufts. You know, those are two great hires, you know, right out of the bat, right, uh, right out of the gate for me that really helped us try to figure some things out. Um, and we were all division one in that. I was a, you know, I was division one head coach for the first time. They were division one assistant coaches, you know, for the first time. So we were very much learning on the fly um, and supporting one another as we, as we were learning. Um, And we had some major challenges, you know, we only had four scholarships when we first got there and, um, you know, meager facilities and, you know, had to have the big picture in mind and just it became more about forming a foundation of standards of behavior and you know culture and you know figuring out how we can you know what do we want to do on the lacrosse field to be successful um but yeah you know those guys were tremendous assets to myself and the program you know and the college um and then you know uh those guys John Galloway got a head coaching position and um Brett Holm was able to go back with Mike Daly at at Brown um, who he has a tremendous relationship with. But, you know, I look back on those four years that we had together and man, we learned a lot together, (laughs) you know, and and we were willing to butt heads on some things and willing to try to like shape it and figure it out and and say, man, that was bad or that was really good. And, you know, um, but then when those guys moved on, I, There's so many great people in lacrosse. I mean, you know that, I don't have to tell you, there's so many wonderful people in lacrosse that just need an opportunity, you know, and um, Matt Francis, who is now our head, uh, our associate, you know, head coach for our program, uh, this was his fifth year with us, uh, came aboard, and man, he was able to help take it from where it was to another level, Um, you know, his expertise in recruiting, and um, he's one of the smartest people, you know, I've been around uh, in the sport. Um, he's humble as heck, too. You know, there's 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 no job too small or too big. You know, for him, he he just gets things done um, at a, at a really efficient rate. You know, the things that he can do that would take me all day probably take him a couple hours. You know, um, uh, you know, Matt and UC joined our staff. Um, you know, for uh, for three years, uh, four years. What was it, you know, I think it's four years, you know, as well, you know, and each guy comes along, I, I'm learning from them. They're learning from me. We're, we're, we're figuring out how to push the program forward, you know, together. This past summer, Kevin Gould joined our staff, um, you know, and he's had a huge impact. You know, it's crazy. You know, you think you're, you're getting good at a certain area with your team, and then a guy comes along and, you know, some of the tweaks that he's able to make to our zone offense and man up, you know, and just how he talks to our attackmen about, you know, little intricacies of attack play. Actually, my seven and a half, you know, eight years at at Providence as a, as a head coach, we never had an assistant coach that actually played attack, <laughs> you know, we had, you know, and, you know, I, I just see the value of that right now, you know, the conversations he's able, able to have with our attackmen about the smallest things that, you know, we all can do, you know, with the positions that we either either played or coached, you know, so yeah, it's, you know, you're right. There's, there's the, the, the people you work with, you know, you have to have great relationships with and those guys were all fun to be around all great friends, you know, of mine along the way. Uh, and guys, I respect so much and learn so much and I root for them, you know, every day.
1: I got to know uh your boy Tate Boyce this summer too um when I was uh down in Narragansett for a week and he yeah. came down and we got a chance to uh shoot on tape we got you know we paid him and served him our lunch every day and let him go to the beach so he could uh, hang out and let us let all of our kids <laughs> have a pro goalie to shoot on um okay. tell us a little bit about him and and how he's helped out the staff and as a player too
2: Yeah he was our um graduate assistant coach this year and Man, he's on his way to being the next, you know, big thing in coaching. I really do believe that. You know, I saw it as a, when he played for us. You know, he was just different. You know, just different, not just with his talent level, uh, but with his leadership skills. You know, um, I like to go in on Sundays, which are which is our day off for us. Um, typically, we play games on Saturdays and off on Sunday, and you know, I learned from Coach Canella, who works, who's worked every Sunday for 25, 26 years, whatever, you know, I just think you can get a lot done on a Sunday, and uh, I would go in there um, by myself, I like to watch the game film by myself, and just kind of like quietly collect my thoughts, and you know, Tate Boyce would have the entire defense in the video room, <laughs> watching, <laughs> watching film, standing up like a coach, you know, yelling at them, pointing out the things they did wrong, did well, you know, all of it, um, you know, on their day off, you know, uh, you know, with absolutely no, you know, influence from the coaches to be doing that. Uh, I would actually like the guys to stay away from the facility for a day, you know, come back hungry on Monday, but, you know, he's just a, a different type of leader and, um, I think he's going to be a great coach because, you know, you look at a guy who played goalie and like everybody wants a goalie coach on their staff. Right. Yeah. Um, cause they can work with your goalies, but he's so much more than that. You know, so much more than that. You know, he's going to be a, an elite defensive coordinator, you know, one day, um, what he knows about team defense, um, is, you know, on another level. Um, so, you know, we're lucky to have him and, uh, Really excited for him, too. He just got picked up by the, um, the water dogs and the PLL. So I, I'm really – I think all of us in lacrosse are hoping they have a season this summer. Give us something to do. I know, man. We need it
1: <laughs> so bad. We need sports. We need, we need really lacrosse. We need a yeah. summer. Yeah. Um, so earlier on you were talking about, you know, when you arrived to Providence and you had to change a culture. And, and, and it's always a question I like to ask head coaches, you know, establishing a culture, changing a culture – maintaining a culture, building a culture, these things, it never goes away. It's, 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 it's the, it's the foundation for everything. How have you evolved with that? Um, how did, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about how it was coming in and and how you've continued to evolve it from there.
2: Yeah. I just think you, you have to establish a standard of behavior and just be unwavering, you know, on it. Um, You know, my big thing is, you know, we have to make things really, really hard. (laughs) We have to make things really difficult and we have to hold them accountable, you know, to to the smallest things, you know, all the way, you know, across the board. You know, you just have to establish, you know, these non-negotiables that you just, you know, it's not going to stand for. And um, even when it's hard, you have to kind of stick to it you know but i think you said it perfectly you know once you think your culture you know is strong and and is right you know and you and you turn your back on it it'll bite you in the ass <laughs> on it and, you know it's like you know it's uh cuz it's constantly evolving because you always have new people right you know it's like my senior class this year you know it was a special group you know here in 2020 they you know they they were all great students um they're, they're really connected to one another. You can see it the way they walk into the locker room or walk around campus. They're always together. You know, they never had any disciplinary issues, you know, really good in school, you know, just very, very coachable, you know, on the field, you know. Um, but then all of a sudden that group, you know, I, I hope a lot of them come back and I'm working towards that. But if they leave, you know, they all, they all leave, say those 11 guys are gone you know, now you bring in another 11 and 12 freshmen, the personality of your team just changes, you know, overnight, you know, dramatically, you know, dramatically. So for us to think that, you know, our culture would just continue uh, without really working at it, you know, um, would be really naive, you know, really naive, you know, so we spend a lot of our time, you know, even though I thought my culture, our culture was really strong this year, I spent the entire time knowing that eventually these boys are going to leave pointing out why is it strong? You know, what are these, what are their little small behaviors that they're doing along the way that are, that are helping us have a strong culture, you know, really socializing, teaching the younger guys. And this is, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. So along the I think that's the best way to teach, you know, is pointing out the positives, whether it's lacrosse uh, or just simple behaviors, You know, this is how it looks. This is how it looks versus like saying, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, I think the guys need to see it, you know. So you're so grateful for guys like Tate Boyce and, you know, Jared Newman and, you know, those guys, James Barclay and, you know, Jimmy Cunningham, guys that have played for us that just, you know, did it the right way, Um, you know, and then you can point to that and, you know, because typically results come with that they don't always do but you know you can point to the results that they they achieve because of that behavior
1: so how would you define good culture great culture
2: yeah i think that's a really hard thing to define you know because it is so fluid and it is such a thing that you know it's it's all encompassing um i think it you know for sure when it's not there (laughs) and and, you know uh, that's probably you know number one but um you know there's a there's a level of respect that everyone has you know for one another you know and the program i just think there's this there's this oozing sense of caring and love you know for each other you know and for the well-being of the program you know knowing that every every little step along the way, everything you do on and off the field impacts, you know, all of us. So being very unselfish, you know, in that regard and, and, and knowledgeable of that fact, um, you know, but, you know, that's why, you know, recruiting was getting very rushed, I thought, for a long period of time with the early recruiting, because um, we we're so busy, you know, trying to land that top player that we weren't, getting getting to know the kids you know as much I think I I do like the new rules you, you really have to get to know the, the the person you know because being a division one lacrosse player is not about you know certainly have to have some level of talent but it's not just about having great lacrosse players it's a grind you know it's an absolute grind you have to love it to death you know And that's kind of pitch in recruiting, say, if you absolutely love lacrosse, you know, and you love being part of a team, then this is going to be for you. But, you know, if if, so you have to really get to know the character, you know, of the person, get to know the character of their parents, um, because I've seen it. You know, I've seen guys with, you know, great speed and great skill and, you know, just never quite they never quite get there you know, at the division one level. And you see these other guys who were under recruited, you know, small scholarships, you know, just thrilled for the opportunity, you know, that by their junior and senior year, by staying on the process of the weight room, the film sessions, the practices being coachable, you know, they've just far exceeded those guys, you know, and uh, you know, that, that Those are the people that we get, you know, for the most part, and that really excel. That's why I think I was especially sad about this season. We had 11 seniors this year, and all of them were playing. All of them were playing. And a lot of them didn't even get a sniff until their junior year uh, or even this year um, at real significant, you know, playing time. But they loved the program. They loved each other they couldn't imagine quitting the, the quitting because they wouldn't be around one another every day. Um, and they just love lacrosse, you know, so they just stuck with it. And for that reason, you know, they were playing at you know, a high level, you know, division one lacrosse.
1: It's a definitely be careful of what you wish for. There's so many people that it's fun to be good. You know, it's fun to get accolades. It's fun to be recruited. It feels good, you know, but but like you say, loving it, absolutely loving it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you want to do. You always want to go to practice. Um, it's funny because, you know, some people that you wouldn't expect to make it, make it really well. And the people that you think are like That's a shoo-in true. to be like yep. such a no-brainer for being, you know, don't make it. And, and, and it really probably does come down to the, the love of being a part of the team and the love That's of the game.
2: Yeah, there's guys that just couldn't imagine. The best part of their day is walking in the locker room, you know, after all the stuff, you know, like, you know, with school and stress of life and, you know, kind of parents on top of them. And they walk in the locker room and it's right away they're, you know, just busting on each other and the music's playing and they're with the boys. And then that carries over into the, onto the field. Yeah, you know, those are the two things I talk about in recruiting more than anything. You know, if you absolutely love it, you, you, you go to bed thinking about it, you dream about it, you wake up in the morning, it's probably the first thing you think about, um, and then you just – your teammate, your guy just loves to be with the boys, um, you're going to be successful at this thing. You're going to be successful.
1: You know, you mentioned, um, you know, you try to see it in the parents and, and, and evaluate it in the recruiting process of the athlete or the prospect. How do you do that? What are, what are things that you look for?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably more of a gut than anything else. You yeah. know, like, you know, we all can sit down with, you know, people for 10 minutes and know if they're a good person, probably, right. <laughs> Just in the way that yeah. they, sometimes the, que- the questions they ask and, um, the way they carry themselves or, you know, letting their kids talk. Um, you know, I don't know it's probably different case by case, but you know, I certainly, I certainly don't get it right every time, you know, but when you do get it right, it's a, it's a home run, you know, for sure. Because you never hear from those parents ever, (laughs) you know, they just want their kid, they want it to be their kid's experience 100%, you know, therefore they're allowing that their, their son to grow, you know, and they've probably done that every step along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm grateful for it because those guys are fun to work with.
1: All right, switching gears. Um, I would love to hear about what your uh, defensive philosophy is these days. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've been a part of a lot of great defenses as a player, as a coach from high school to college, all the way through till 2020. Um, I would love to hear where you're at.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that is constantly evolving. Like I said before, I think you're you're crazy if you're not um, you know, willing to look at, you know, on film what are some people doing that that you think is unique or effective, you know, and be willing to steal those things along the way. I think a big piece is, you know, who do you have, right? You know, what are what are your parts, you know, uh to the whole. Uh it would be wonderful if we had had, you know, six guys that we don't have to slide to and, you know, just say, you got him and you got him and you got him and, you know, here we go, um, which, you know, I was able to do sometimes uh, at certain places I've been along the way. Um, you know, I remember when Coach Shea, Andy Shea, coached me at, at UMass, it was like, you know, we're not sliding anybody,
0: <laughs> you know,
2: because <laughs> we had a good group of guys that could do that. And... Um, you know, I think that's become, I don't know why, but I think that's become, you can talk about stick, uh, stick technology and all sorts of things or scheming, but I think that's become harder and harder, you know, than ever. I think, you know, and i probably learned this from
1: sliding time. or not sliding.
2: Um, Having to slide, you know, I think that the team defense concepts, um, you know, are, are more at play than ever, ever before, you know, um, You know, there's very little takeaway checks. You know, um, like I said, it's hard to get the ball out of people's sticks. Um, You know, the team defensive stuff that I learned along the way from, you know, probably most of the guys like Jason Miller and Ron Caputo, you know, are really the things I fall back on. Um, You know, we have to be able to, you know, slide and support one another, uh, get that high school mentality of I got my man, you know, attitude you know, throw that out the window, you know, um, you know, Andy Shea would call it like a hybrid, you know, type of thing where it's like you're man to man on the ball, but behind that is sort of a zone, you know, because matchups go out the window. You're better off, you know, maintaining team position, you know, and protecting the most threatening areas of the field, you know, than you are trying to stay with your man because the motions are so intricate, you know, these days, there's so many good, you know, offensive coordinators, So while we want to defend the ball really effectively and well, um, we want the on-ball defender for us to know that he's going to have support. You know, we just have to funnel that ball carrier to the, you know, specific areas of the field. And then, you know, we're probably at our best here at Providence College when um, we're sliding and recovering with great pace and intensity and togetherness you know um we put a little pressure on our goalies and we have to have good goalies guys like Tate Boyce you know Toby Bergdorf this year had one of the best saving percentages you know in the country but he was also on pace to make you know probably 190 200 saves you know but we think if we you know can rush our opponent you know make them play make them link together three, four, five, six passes before shots, you know, there's a lot of room for error, you know, there, you know, for them. Um, but it takes great camaraderie, uh, trust, and cohesiveness, you know, defensively, you know, and uh, great leadership and uh, ability to make saves, you know, for sure. Um, but, again, I think you got to look at who you're coaching you know, too. Right. And, and the rules have changed a lot, you know, with the shot clock and you could probably trickle in a little zone. Uh, I am not a big fan of zone. I think every time we play zone defense, I have more questions than answers. Uh, and if I have questions, I'm sure the players do, but there's no doubt. It, it kind of helps you change pace and, and do some things. I just don't, I'm not comfortable doing it for long periods of time, you know, and I don't think defensemen want to play zone. I don't, when I was a defenseman, I sure as heck didn't want to play zone. You know, I want to get on a guy's gloves. I want to chase. I want to get the ball to the ground, you know. Um, so we're going to recruit guys that, you know, want to play that way.
1: The shot clock has made such a massive difference. It's funny because when you think of a shot clock in a restriction like that, you think of it as, like, a defensive advantage. Um, but uh, what we're really finding out is that people could score a lot quicker than they were. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, defense always is going to matter. But, man, it, it seems like you do have to be prepared to win a game, you know, 18-17 or twenty nineteen, just as much as it used to be a 9-8 type of deal back, uh, back pre-shot clock.
2: Yeah, I definitely think it's a better brand of lacrosse, you know. For sure. Yeah. It, it's exciting. It's exciting. But, yeah, the shot clock, you know, we joke around and call it the eighth defenseman sometimes. Yeah or I'm sorry, you know, the, uh, <laughs> this, yeah, the eighth defenseman, you know, yeah. you, you have a, you know, six defenders and you have a goalie, right. And then you only got the shot clock. <laughs> so, um, but at times it helps, but yeah. <laughs> at times it helps.
1: What what's your philosophy on, um, on keeping things simple and being multiple. This is the this is the contradiction that everybody battles because you're like, man, I'd love to be able to do that. But then, you know, at a certain point, it's like, you know, it's like the straw that breaks the cam's back, you know, and you see some coaches pulling it off, and you see, you know, what even in football, you know, like new game playing every single week. And it's like, I don't know how they do that. You know, we, I'm just trying to like play a pick.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Simple, yeah. right? And so, how do you find that balance, and what's your philosophy on that?
2: Yeah. They, again, it comes back down to who you're coaching. You know, do you have a, you know, a bunch of seniors on the defensive end, you have a a lot of new guys, you know, what is your, uh, your chemistry? What is your experience? What is your, uh, you know, communication, you know, ability, you know, for sure. But I've definitely sided as of late on simplicity, you know, for sure. Um, We'd rather have our guys, you know, playing at a fast pace, you know, and, and trusting their fundamentals and, their ability to slot and recover with speed and, you know, just play fast, you know, without thinking, you know, too much. Uh, we do provide scouting reports, but the, I think they're, they're very simple. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we want to focus on the fundamentals. I think the the more people are, the more the guys are thinking, the slower they play, yeah. you know, and it's hard enough as it is, you know, it definitely is hard enough as it is. So we're definitely going to be aware of what our opponent's good at and who are their best players and what are their strengths and how do they get to them. Um, And then we're just going to do our best to deter them. Uh, You know, but I, I think our, you know, a defensive mentality is you, you like that challenge, you know, trying to make an an offensive player or an offensive, you know, group, you know, frustrated, you know, by taking away, you know, what, what they do well. Um, But, you know, we're not a group that's going to, Going to do that with heavy scheme you know like uh, shutoffs and you know zones and things like that uh, we just want our guys to be very aware of what our opponent's trying to accomplish, and then you know we want to be fundamental in our approach to to make to make what they're doing you know difficult
1: well, I want to ask you about communication, which is obviously such a backbone of any defense hmm. How do you recruit it? How do you develop it? Um, it just seems like this—the conversation that you want people to be having, as opposed to just "I got ball" or "I'm hot," right? Um, yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I
2: think, yeah, you definitely use the word we want to have—want to have conversation, you know, for sure. Um, but I think we help, um, you know, encourage you know communication by having a million terms. We have. We have so many terms, you know, for uh, terms for positioning, uh, off ball uh, terms for technique, you know, on ball uh, terms for slide packages and terms for, you know, just schemes, you know, in general, we have terms for, you know, fundamental skill, um, you know, as simple as, you know, we use the word bent, you know, to guys get bent, you know, want everyone an off ball posture that they are bent and an athletic posture ready to make a play versus standing up, you know, so the guys can use, you know, our, you know, our you know playbook of terminology to have conversation that, you know, anybody, even someone as knowledgeable as lacrosse is like a guy like you probably wouldn't know what we're saying because it's a different term than, than yeah. other teams use. Right. Um, but, you know, I probably learned that a lot from Coach Danowski and Coach Caputo. You know, we have terms for everything, you know, terms for everything. And, you know, by having that language, the guys have specific, you know, expectations of what they're supposed to be saying and when they're supposed to be saying it. And, you know, big thing for us is like I try to teach us communication is not just talking, it's listening. Yeah. You know, a lot of these guys are not used to, you know, um, Executing what they've been told, you know. And when I get frustrated, I, I start saying things like, uh, "We can't text it to you," you know, out here. You know, you have to absorb it, you know, and and execute, you know. So that's a big piece of it. But um, yeah, it's just a, a daily a daily uh, battle, you know, trying to get guys to you communicate. But I think it, most coaches will tell you having an older defense is is really nice. Because you know they know the terminology, but they also have this confidence level, you know, in themselves, you know, as a person and knowing knowing what they're saying is correct, um, you know. So that helps.
1: So I would like to now switch gears to a little on the other side of the ball um, at Providence. How are you guys trying to play offensively? Um, what's your philosophy, and how do you develop players? <sighs>
2: Yeah, I think, again, it comes back down to who do you have, uh, you know, for sure. Um, You know, for instance, this past season, you know, really strong in the midfield. You know, um, you know, we think we can recruit athletes, you know, uh, you can recruit size, speed, you know, um, you know, overall athleticism Um, more than we're going to get the, you know, refined, you know, top 10 recruit, you know, type of guy, you know, so um, if you have a, a guy you bring in at, you know, say, you know, 6'2", 6'3", 180 uh, midfielder, you know, by the time he graduates, he could be 195, 200 pounds. And, you know, we have a process we believe in, like most division one programs do in, in, in terms of our weight room and uh, strength and conditioning. But You know, overall, guys' bodies just mature a lot between 18 and 22. And, uh, you know, but we, as of late, have really focused on our midfield play um, in terms of generating offense. Um, Obviously, those are the guys that quite often, you know, um, get the short stick matchups. And we just demand that our midfielders are two-handed. You know, we we work really, really hard at it. Uh, That's something that I've – I've really enjoyed working with our midfielders the last couple of years and, you know, demanding that, you know, um, simple fundamentals, right to left split, left to right split um, and, you know, re-dodging and being able to shoot or exchange the ball, you know, with both hands Um, and, you know, have to help our guys realize that that's a four-year process. You know, that's a, (laughs) you know, not a lot of guys, especially the ones that are recruited at Division I level, are doing that or or have to do that consistently at the high school level because they can be so dominant you know with their strong hand um so you know we demand that of them and you know uh but we want to you know what we call hit singles you know got that from coach danowski you know we don't want to be a home run group we want to link together you know three four passes and uh, work for great shots, not just good shots, you know, and uh, that's when our attack comes into play. You know, I think if we're generating offense with our midfielders uh, and creating space and drunk slides, you know, you you need a tackman that can finish the ball, you know, consistently, I'm not telling anybody that it's anything new yeah. there, you know, but um, guy like for us, Matt Grillo is just a, you know, he's a sophomore from, you know, Ward Melville has scored big goals and scored a lot of goals his whole life. You know, you you need you need guys like that that are at the end of the rainbow to put it in the back of the net. You know for sure. Um, But you know, much like defense, we focus on fundamentals uh, a lot. You know, a lot. We don't really even talk about our opponents until we start feeding the guys some information about our opponents by like Wednesday, scouting report Thursday. But You know, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday are really all about getting better. Uh, So we spend a ton of time on, you know, just individual development, small group development, real fundamental based. Um, When I was at Duke, you know, Coach Danowski had us all coaching, you know, everything, particularly, you know, in the fall. Um, So I learned a ton about terminology and, you know, fundamental skill. you know, there and coaching offense is fun. <laughs> you, you get to shoot the ball, you know, when I'm working with the defense, we don't even have a ball. It reminds me of the old, you know, Hoosier film when that, you know, the guys are complaining because uh, there's no ball in practice, you know, uh, coaching, you know, coaching offense is fun. So I do enjoy working with the old middies.
1: I, uh, I agree with you, but I think it's like, if you coached offense, if you coach offense, when you get moved to the defensive side, the ball, you love it. And if you coach defense and you get moved to the other side of the ball, it's a blast. It's kind of a nice change up. And honestly, yeah. to be a great coach, though, you really need to know both sides of the ball.
2: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And over time, you, you know, you, you, you're coaching and watching all this film of other teams and you, you're stealing ideas and, right. you know, man up plays or, or just fundamental, you know, techniques.
1: Right. Yeah, and know. giving yourself a look, you know. I mean, if you're the defensive coordinator, you got to be able to give yourself the right look. Yeah. You got to be able to manufacture that and explain that, you know?
2: Yeah. You're ultimately an offensive coordinator at the end of the week, like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as well as a defensive coordinator. Cause you're, you're teaching your, your scout group, you know, how to run an offense, you know, and, uh, while, while coming up with a scheme to stop it defensively. Yeah.
1: What, uh, what's your take on two man game? How much do you guys do? How do you, how do you develop it? Offensively? Yes. Uh,
2: you know we've dabbled with a little bit of pear stuff um ironically as the season came to an end um we were more and more introducing it we did in the fall with this group and you know traditionally we have not had a ton of success with that you know we're we're better uh, long dodgers straight ahead you know fundamental um but we did try to do some pairs in the fall, and like I said, towards the end of the season before it got cut off there. Um, you know, and we've had some success with it. Again, that comes back to like a lot of people do it against us. And you're like, hey, you know, we have some parts that we, we can probably pull that off, you know. And, you know, but we don't do it. A, we don't do a ton. We don't do a ton. But, uh, you know, off the end line. Uh, you know, a little inbound play, you know, we play a little two man game and we play some pairs up top. Um, but I think the area we've grown a lot in is defending, uh, the two man game, you know, and we have some things that we do that, that we think are effective. Um, and they come back to, um, you know, being decisive, uh, with what we do, uh, versus, Hey, if we see this, do that, or if, if they do that, we do this, you know, we've kind of eliminated, you know, all of that, you know, we're better off uh, being really decisive and cohesive, you know, defensively. Um, Matt Francis has done an incredible job, you know, looking at film of some other teams like, like Denver, for example, was, you know, hedging their picks in front of the cage uh, last couple of years. And, you know, I'm watching it as a maybe a, a traditionalist, and I'm like, I don't know how they do that. You know, I would never do that. And, uh, you know, by the end of the year, last year, we were doing it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt Francis, can, you know, convinced me, and he found out, you know, how to teach it. And uh, we saw, like, wow, this is effective. You know, let's do it. You know, yeah. It comes back to what we talked about before, just trusting you, the guys you work with and For sure. you know, him having the confidence to convince me, you know, that, that I'm not going to shut him down, you know, and, and and me being, you know, smart enough to know that he's smarter than me.
1: <laughs> what um? how do you like to cover picks on the wings?
2: So we like to do what we call space picks from, you know when they're far from the cage, you know, so the, the defender that's covering and it's funny, I even watch pro games and I see guys defend picks a certain way. And I'm like, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me, but you know, to each their own. But I think when picks are set far from the cage, meaning towards the restraining line or, like you're talking about wide to the wings, yep. I see no reason for the defender of the picker to go out there with them. <laughs> Much like Coach Francis has taught me with you know, uh, hedging a pick in front of the cage when the ball's behind the cage. Um, so we space it, meaning provide space for the on-ball defender uh, just to maneuver the picker, not the picker and the um, and the defender of the picker, um, and it also what do you mean, gives- the um,
1: the defender on the picker backs off. You're saying.
2: Yes, just backs off to the paint, which is the area of the right in front of the cage that we're, you know, most vulnerable and want to protect, you know, the most. So it also provides if you do have to switch for whatever reason, the ball carrier beats the on-ball defender or the on-ball defender does running to the pick, that man, because he stepped back, still has time to play the ball without giving up a shot he's also more likely going to give himself a a good angle of approach, you know, to get that, the ball carrier, you know, to a a less threatening area of the field. We've had some success with that. And, you know, um, again, we've been a little bit more decisive with it, meaning, you know, you know, we're not asking our guys to read too many things. Yeah. Say, Hey, we're going to get through this, or we're going to switch this and that's it. You know, we're taking the we're taking the gray out of it, you know, the gray area it would be really black and white.
1: Yeah, it's smart, man, because there's if you if you try to get your defense to do too many things on picks, it's gonna get ugly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think. I mean, I think you can do a couple maybe, but but it's really hard to do one thing behind one thing on the wing, another thing here, and you know, jump them on the goal line and all of a sudden, you know, it would have been easier if you just switched it sometimes, you know.
2: Yeah. I I, I have a funny line with the guys like I You know, even if it's a short stick switching on to the ball carrier, their best player, I'd rather it be a short stick than nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Because if we're going to, you know, if we're not going to effectively communicate and no one ends up on the guy, then we're really dead.
1: (laughs) It is maddening, though, when you just watch these offenses that really know how to read it, you know, and it's like, oh, if you go into the pick, they just keep setting it closer and they shoot. And then you got to, you know, if you go over the pick, now they create, you know, a definite throwback situation because you get two on the ball. You know, if you switch it they hedge it, I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, but I do think that we're going to see – we've seen a lot of it, you know, in the last 10 years, and I think it's actually going to accelerate. I think um, the fact is, is that in isolation when you slide, you got four to guard five. And in two-man game when you slide, it's three to guard four, and that's just a big advantage for the offense if you can make that happen.
2: Yeah, it all comes back to numbers, just like basketball, right? Just trying to create those numbers advantages. Yeah, and the guys that do it, that do the two-man game stuff, they're doing it because they have some coaches that know how to coach it, and they have some players that are pretty, pretty good at it, you know. So, yeah, you know, again, coming back to, you know, what's our best chance to be successful defensively, you know, knowing all that information, you know, try to be as decisive and as athletic and disruptive, you know, as we can be.
1: So, last topic recruiting. Um, if people haven't seen Providence, you should see it. Uh, I grew up in Providence and I've really watched the evolution of Providence College um, from a school that I cheered for in the 1987 Final Four uh, all the way until uh, when I came and visited you guys a couple of years back. Your facilities are phenomenal, the school's beautiful. Um, please uh, tell us about um, you know, recruiting and, and, and what you have to offer and kind of what you're looking for.
2: Yeah, you know, we're really, really fortunate. You know, I've, I've seen a, a massive evolution, you know, of a college you know, during my tenure, um, more so than I even knew I was getting into, you know, when you're uh, sort of being recruited as I was, you know, to come to Providence College, you know, um, we didn't have the scholarships and we didn't have the facilities that we do now. And, you know, but they were saying, hey, these things are all coming. We have a plan. You know, I can show you. Hey, this is what the stadium is going to look like. This is what the locker room is going to look like. This is our our scale plan. You know, to get you fully funded by you know 2016. You know, type of thing. What they didn't tell me, which they would have, <laughs> should have, or you know, it could it would have convinced me even further is, you know, that our business school was becoming accredited, and then we just got you know now we offer an MBA. And we're going to build a brand new business business school. <laughs> we're also going to build a brand new science building and brand new humanities building. Um, you know, so you know the evolution has been dramatic. You know, dramatic. Um, you know, we went from probably having the worst athletic facilities in Division One to maybe you know the top ten percent. You know, in a very short period of time. Um, and the value of our degree, you know, has grown stronger every year. Um, you know, there's more applicants, you know, for the 1,100 people that we bring in every year than ever. So the the level of student, you know, at Province College is becoming stronger and stronger than ever. Um, and again, as I mentioned before, the evolution of our business school has been as important or more. Than any scholarships or yeah. um, facilities, you know that we that we have because you know the lacrosse community is an, an affluent, highly educated you know community. Um, the uh, many aspire to have a, a profession in the in the business world. You know our alumni uh, connection or, or network in the business world is tremendous uh, in New York City and in Boston in particular. You know, so for us to have an accredited business school, you know, one of the tops and uh, an MBA, which uh, right now with this eligibility relief that was just provided, you know, the fact that we have the ability to give our guys the option to earn an MBA here with their five years uh, is huge. Um, You know, so. It is the complete package, you know, for sure. Uh, Providence College is a, a unique place, and that's a smaller, uh, intimate academic environment. You know, we're only going to have about 17 to 20 students per class. Um, but within that, we're going to have the, the big-time athletics experience, Big East basketball, Big East lacrosse, hockey, East hockey, you know, uh, fully funded, you know, programs. So, you're getting the best of the both, both worlds you Know, in my opinion, um, the same can be said about your overall experience at Providence College. It's a smaller, you know, quaint, quiet, personal, um, friendly, you know, again, quiet, intimate atmosphere on campus. Yeah. But then we're connected to a major city uh, as well, you know, so you have all the amenities that come along, you know, with that, um, which I don't have to tell you about the city of Providence. So, this is so much to offer in way of culture and food oh um, man the federal it's hill it's the best you know the best so it's kind of like it fits a lot of different personalities you know our experience at Providence college because you have the big and small constantly coming at you you know um, also fits a lot of different moods it's kind of like whatever you're in the mood for you
1: know yeah you, you have it at your fingertips that's awesome how far along are you in recruiting of 2021s
2: very far along and uh, i'm you know the cer- the uh specific uh predicament that we're all in right now i'm very grateful that we are you know i don't i don't know how much evaluation we're going to be able to have you know of the 21s here um certainly in the spring but even the summer you know is unknown um but um i believe we have 13 or 14 committed 2021s. You know we were we we're very aggressive. You know we had about 65 um, 2021s on our campus after September 1st. Um, you know it was exhausting. You yeah. know in, in the fall, where um, you know we had guys on campus almost every Monday and every Friday. You know so, um, but that's kind of how we do things, and I'm. You know I, I'm I, I love the class I think it's a great group uh, we're very happy with it and um, I'm glad we have those those guys <laughs> committed to our program because um, I think some people that may be, some programs that may be weighted you know I, I don't I don't know I don't know if and when they're gonna be able to evaluate
1: yeah no doubt I think it's I think it's going to be – I think it is going to be difficult. And and then, on the other hand, some people might be glad that they have spots left over so they can take some fifth-year seniors down the line too, you know. I mean, so
2: that's, that's true too. That's true too. Yep.
1: But I also think that, you know, I'm sure you love your class. Everybody loves their class. There are so many – there are so many good players out there. And there are so many good players – you know, that have probably gotten missed. You know, I've said this a few times on podcasts, but I really believe this class of 2021 is the most under-evaluated class that we've had in a long time because nobody really started looking at them, you know, until fall of their sophomore year. And we know that fall is kind of – it doesn't really give you a whole lot anyways. I mean, you can see a superstar, but but even then you can't really be sure because the level of play is – shaky a lot of the superstars aren't there people are injured it's 28 degrees it might be raining whatever um so it's pretty interesting to look at that because I think there's probably a lot of 21s out there and you're right if there's no always
2: yeah yeah Yeah, that's that's always been true I think you know ironically like uh (laughs) you know our rookie of the year in the past three years has been um the last guy we took, <laughs> you know, so it's like I think that's always true it is um you know uh, yeah, but you're right, it might be you know more than ever you know right now, I think you might have to start relying on watching film you know uh, and the technology more than ever, uh, particularly for the twenty two group you know Go which down. is the was going to be the big evaluation for us this summer. Um, we're certainly hoping we still get it in June, July. And, you know, who knows, does the NCA you know, push the dead period back so we can push this thing into August, you know, to give those kids a chance to be seen. But then now you're starting to interfere with football and there's a lot of unknowns, you know, of course.
1: I mean, in Colorado school starts on uh, August 8th, you know, in Georgia, Uh, it all starts. You know, they're of course, they're all out on Memorial Day weekend. So, you know, it looks like June is going to be is 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 questionable, um, but um, we'll see what happens with July. But it is, you know, the statement of the class of twenty twenty one being the most under evaluated class is about to be surpassed by the class of twenty two because their window is going to be likely to be shorter, um, and then that's going to push it into the whopping six days of November. <laughs> you know, six days of evaluation opportunity. Um, maybe it'll be like the old days when you just went to yeah. 105 and you tried to find a rising senior.
2: Yeah. And then maybe we'll, we'll all push back even further, you know, where we're right. Like you're saying, um recruiting guys as they're going into their senior year. You know, I didn't commit to the UMass until February of my senior year. I remember that being at like one of our first practices and being like, yeah, we just, we're going to go to UMass. <laughs> and uh, I was like February of our senior year. It's, it's like, But because we played football and, you know, we weren't going to visit during football season and there was no summer lacrosse, you know. So that was just the way maybe we'll start going back to that.
1: Yeah. Maybe they can bring back the Empire State games while they're at it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That was the best. That That was. was That's like when you grew up on Long Island, you dreamed of making the Empire team. You know, if you know, if you made the Empire team, that was that was pretty cool.
1: And if you were a coach, you just dreamed of going to watch Empire games for an entire summer rather than just a four or five day period at the end of July.
2: Yep, (laughs) yep.
1: Hey, Gabs, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all your thoughts and experiences and philosophies uh, on this podcast. You got some great stuff going on. It was sad to see uh, your season cut short. You guys were doing some great things, but uh, best of luck moving forward.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this was a ton of fun. You know, these are long days for me, so um, just to be able to talk lacrosse with you has been
1: awesome. So, thank you. Love it. Let's do it again. The Philacrosophy podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late '80s, who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the air gate. OXIA Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University OXIA watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, OXIA keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things OXIA offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA lacrosse championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. OXIA even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, OXIA will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A X. I a time.com.